Palmer Bear on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmer Bear. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who has been one of the most familiar faces in football for a long time. And that is all without pulling on a boot at the top level. Mike Sheehan. Welcome. Hello, Peter. Yes, sadly, my sporting life has been watching other people play their sporting lives. Oh, no, it's been a lot more than that. How do you feel sitting on the other side of the desk? Which is unusual. Yeah, yeah, I often say to people that uh, I'm far more comfortable asking than answering. How are you oh, keeping? I'm good, Pete, thank you. Yeah? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm busier than probably I thought I would be. I was going to say, uh, semi-retired is um, probably the description that you may have, but uh, it's in reality, it's not that, is it? It doesn't appear to be. I left the Herald Sun in 2011. Very, very fortunate to have this perfect transition period via Fox Footy. But this year, for reasons still unknown to me, I took on a role at SEN on uh, Monday mornings. I enjoy it when I'm there, but it still means getting up at 6 o'clock on a Monday morning and probably watching a lot more football than I would have planned to. Do you still enjoy watching footy or is it a bit of a chore? No, no, no. No, I love watching the best footy. And this year, I'm not sure the football's been brilliant in the pure sense this year, but the theatre's been unbelievable. I've really enjoyed I love it when it gets down to the wire and you're not quite sure who's going to win and why and then something unexpected will happen and you sort of say how good is this game? And I've always had the view, and I've said this probably since I've been 30 or 40, that the best of today's football is better than it's ever been but there are moments when it degenerates and you sort of say, is the game as good as it was? Mike, why are we sitting here today talking about a journalism career that has lasted for so long? How did the career actually begin? Because I think it kind of began by accident a little bit, didn't it? Well, it did, Pete. Um, And you've asked me the question, so I don't want to sound self-indulgent, but I'll tell you now. I just completed year 11 at Werribee High School. My previous three years had been CBC North Melbourne. And I wasn't a great student. I mean, I think I was capable, but I was lazy. A couple of very good students had a CBC North Melbourne then. Yeah. Yeah, like? Me. (laughs) Is that your school? Yeah, I went there. I didn't know that. Only for a couple of years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, so we've got that in common. Yes. My mate, Peter Shanahan, who was who played 21 games for the Bulldogs, as it happened, um, the, a guy moved into his street and bought the local paper. And his mother said to the new guy, uh, Peter's got a mate who wants to be a journalist. And he said, well, tell him he can come to work in the school holidays. Tell him, uh, we'll do, give him three weeks. So I went there for three weeks at the Werribee Banner, no longer in, uh, in play, and stayed there for five years. And uh, I've been eking out a living in journalism ever since. So did you fall in love with the caper straight away? I did. I think I've got a natural curiosity. And as you would probably attest, Peter, I am highly opinionated. Um, Sometimes. <laughs> so I think the curiosity and, and the keenness to express an opinion, and I like to think a reasonable understanding of what it's like to be on a sporting field, put all those things together, and um, uh, that's what made it work. But but I know one thing. I wouldn't have survived. I would have died of malnutrition if my wage depended on being something technical. <laughs> I, can't use, I can't use my hands to do anything. When you were writing in those first years and the first weeks what were you writing about? Was it sport or was it basically everything? No, when you work at a local paper, Peter, you, you write do the lot. You do yeah. courts, you do council, and you yeah. do footy. 
And it is interesting. I played footy at Werribee, as you no doubt are aware, yes. because I've told you a hundred times. I was probably 19 and playing football at Werribee, and then the paper would come out on a Thursday, right? And I would do the match reports on the football. And for reasons that still escape me, I was quite scathing about players and things that happened in the team that I was playing in. So... I'd get to training and the papers would be on the training the training tables and blokes would be reading. Blokes wouldn't talk to me. I mean, there's this, and I'm sure they were saying there's this little upstart who's telling us what we did wrong the previous week and running around and playing with us. So I don't quite know how that happened. But I think, in all seriousness, I think it was a, a sign that I was prepared to say that the hard things when they needed to be said. I'll ask you about that footy career with Werribee a little bit later on, but let's stick with the journalism angle now. Mm. So where did it progress from the Werribee banner? There was a paper called Newsday. It was an afternoon paper that The Age launched in 1969. I was the last person hired. I know you always hear that story, but this is in fact true. A bloke called Don Lawrence, the former Herald uh, golf and tennis writer, was the, the chief. The man who gave Jack Nicholas the name The Golden Correct. Bear. One and the same. Yeah. Uh, he um, uh, contacted me and said, would I come in for an interview? He said there was one spot left on the editorial staff and I went in, as nervous as you could be, a little kid from Werribee going in there and perhaps sort of uh, joining up a Melbourne newspaper. Anyway, I got the job. The paper only lasted uh, six months, uh, and then I went down to the Hobart Mercury and spent three years down there. Is it true that your first feature interview was Sam Kekovich? <laughs> uh, it wasn't a feature interview. It was, it was Sam was in hospital having a knee done, and Greg Hobbs, who was very good to yep. me, was my first football boss and a great mentor to me. Uh, he said, uh, I'm off tomorrow. Uh, ring Kekovich. Here's his number. And it was like I was talking to Elvis Presley. I rang him up. I, I almost called him Mr. Kekovich, and he's probably about he, – I'm not sure he's even as old as I am. No, probably but, not. But I was so nervous talking to this – because he was a massive figure then, Sam. Mm. Um, and I was so courteous and so, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but he was quite he was quite agreeable, and he, he spoke from his hospital bed to me, and I wrote a story about it. And, you know, you just grow from those uh, those sort of things. And knowing Keke, you said that you thought you were talking to Elvis Presley and probably so did he. <laughs> I think he thought he was bigger than Elvis. <laughs> so the Hobart Mercury is the next link in the chain. Hobart Mercury for three years. And then what? Uh, and then I came back to Melbourne and in one of the smarter decisions I've made, Inside Football wanted me to work there, 1973. And Inside Football was owned by the age and came out of the age building. So I said to a bloke called Philip Burford, it was another tennis writer for the Herald, and it was the editor of Inside Football. I said, I'll come back and I'll work for the paper so long as I can go into the age in summertime when Inside Football went into recess. So he came back to me a few days later and he said, yes, they've agreed to that. So I thought, well, I can have a season on Inside Football, get onto the age and hopefully stay there. And that's how it transpired. And then as it progressed to the Herald Sun, yep. and I know we're stepping over a few steps along the way, but... Everyone remembers you as the chief football writer for the Herald Sun, everyone in sport. Did you realise what power you had when you stepped into that job? And you'll play it down a little bit, but you were clearly one of the most powerful men in football in that job. Did I realise that? Um, probably not. I, I th I'm, a bit like, I'm a bit like Wayne Schimmelbush in terms of... Wayne Schimmelbush always said that his next game was the most important thing to him and his reputation stood or fell on what he did the next week. And I think I was a bit like that. I knew, you know, when you replace Alf Brown, which I did in 1979, you know the position's important, but I'm not sure I ever thought that I was that important. And I was a news getter. I mean, I, I loved the hard news and I was probably at my best, I suspect, when I was working for the Herald. You had the opportunity, though, of setting the agenda because this is one of the biggest selling papers, yep. if not the biggest selling paper in Australia, and you could set the agenda on a Monday morning or any morning mm. you liked. Yeah, true, and I, and I was keen to do I think 
I think it's fair to say that I was the first journo to actually project his opinions as something that mattered. I mean, Alf wasn't an opinion writer, nor was Tom Pryor and those and Barry Brettler and those boys. They tended to report what happened. I decided, <laughs> I decided that uh, I knew a bit about this game, rightly or wrongly, and I wanted to express an opinion. And I didn't believe that only the coaches knew about it. I thought, well, you can be a football watcher and have an opinion that's worth listening to. So I started to do that at the Herald. And... I suppose in that context, in answer to your question, I mean, that does give you some power because when I went to the Herald in 1979, there were two papers, the Sun in the morning and the Herald in the afternoon, which you'd remember, mm. uh, and they later became the Herald Sun. They were pumping out 1.1 million copies a day out of Flinders Street in those days, 1.1. The Sun was doing 600,000 odd and the Herald was doing, I think, four or 500,000. So it's a major, it's a big penetration, isn't it, when you look at it in that context? And, and I was in the paper every day um, writing either news stories or opinion pieces and I think they were probably reasonably forceful for the day. I mentioned before that you could set the agenda. Was there one particular piece that you wrote in your career that had an impact on the game? If I had to say, if you ask me about the legacy, I think the issue that I started, a lot of personal pronouns here, aren't there? But, but this you, is Mike. true. This is true. I, I started the campaign to show... Uh, to pay more attention to blokes who were concussed. I, was no, I don't care what anyone else says about that. It was me. Uh, and I was really mindful about how these blokes could play football when they'd been knocked out or were they clearly dazed and didn't know where they were and they were allowed to continue playing or sent back on the ground. And I reckon that started probably 15, 18 years ago. And now it's really fashionable now. You're just you're not allowed to go back. And I think the thing that tipped me over was I used to sort of advocate with Andrew Demetrio about this because Andrew Demetrio was sent in the next week by Lee Matthews one day in a brutal collision. Andrew didn't see him coming. Lee went straight through him. And I, he told me that he just had no idea where he was after that. And I'm saying, well, why don't you make sure that blokes who are in the same condition stay off the footy ground and recover? And there was a, a case that the Swans were playing one day and Jude Bolton got a free kick, clearly distressed, but you know how brave Jude Bolton was, bent down to pick up the footy and fell over. Right? And he got up again and he bent down again and he fell over. And I thought, this bloke can't be playing, can't be allowed to play a game of football in that condition. So there were periods where I just sort of continued the campaign to sort of say, we need to give this the attention it deserves and they shouldn't be allowed to be out on the ground. In, in deference to their long-term welfare. Now, I'm not claiming to be – I'm not Eddie the expert here, but I just on the question that you asked me, I do believe that was a really responsible stand when the authorities didn't pay the attention it deserved. You told me you played for Werribee uh, 100 times, you said. We're going to make Did it 101 on the other side of the break. Mike Sheehan <laughs> is my special guest, and he'd love to be sitting over this side of the desk mm. because he'd be a lot more comfortable, and we'll talk about his show when we come back on the other side of the break as well. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Yeah! You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it is a pleasure to have Mike Sheehan as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. All right, the 101st time about Werribee. What sort of football <laughs> were you, Mick? What sort of, I, I was pretty hard at it. My hands were good. I wasn't quick. I kicked like Johnny Gould, which means it's a two-handed takeaway and they went anywhere. Um, I was okay, but I don't think, uh, as much as I would have loved to have played AFL, I don't think I was unlucky not to. Where did you play? What position? Half forward, mm. occasionally in the centre. How many games? 
I played 55 at Werribee and then I went when I was down working for the Hobart Mercury. I played a season at North Hobart and then the guy who was the chief football writer retired and I took his place. So you never aspired to the top level, did you? Of course you? I did, yeah. But you've got to be realistic about it. So when did you not aspire to the top level then? Who told you that you would never When I was about 40, I thought I sort of gave up my, <laughs> my dream at 40, 45. <laughs> Did you get a realistic appraisal from your coaches at the time to say, look, you're pretty handy at this level, but um, you won't take the next step? Look, in all seriousness, so it was never um, – I, I, I trained at Carlton. That was the closest I ever got to having a dream about playing in the AFL. It was about 1963 or four, but I was one of 300 down there at the time. Played a practice game, had a couple of touches. I didn't leave there thinking uh, that they were going to uh, – come around with a big Gladstone bag and tip it on the table and say, will you please sign up? <laughs> a couple of years before that, uh, you went to the grand final, the VFL grand final as it was then. 1961? Yeah. Tell I us did. about that. I did. Um, a guy called Bernie Lee played for Footscray, played 95 games for the Doggies and played fullback in the 61 grand final team. He lived around the corner from me. He lost his mother very young and we he was almost like another brother for me. I used to carry his bag to the football I reckon if he played 95 games, I reckon I carried it about 80 times, right? This little kid carrying his bag. And in 61, I was 14, and I broke my leg at training one night, footy training, had my leg in plaster. So on grand final day, Bernie Lee and Bob Spargo, who played in the centre that day, have carried me to my seat in the northern stand before the grand final. Now, how big's that? I mean, mm. it, other than the players, I thought I was the biggest person in the ground that day. But that's – and I was very lucky that Bernie was so patient that he was prepared to, prepared to have this little kid hang around him. And just – I used to go in the rooms all the time, go to training, just loved it. Um, so uh, that's an experience that you can't buy. Do you find it interesting now, Mike, that people in your profession, your former profession, newspaper football writers, there's practically not one of them who's not got a job in other media? Yeah, these days. Yeah, um, that's true, and, and I understand. I like that. I mean, I think that um, uh, talking footy was where it started in TV turns for journo's. I was on there with Bruce McAvaney and um, uh, Malcolm Blight. Malcolm was more lethal. Well, I think it was Malcolm Blight. I think it was Malcolm. Yeah. So that was 1995. Gary Fenton, then the boss at Channel Seven, rang me one day, and I used to get on well with Gary, so we had a friendly chat, and he said. Um, he said, we're going to start this football program. You know, he used to go. And he said, um, McAvaney will do it because he should. Lee Matthews will be there and we're going to get a journalist. And it's going to be you. And I said, no, no, it's not. I don't want to do that. I mean, I was petrified by the thought of sitting alongside those two blokes on television every Monday night. Anyway, it came to pass. And I think that was the template for the shows that we've now got. They haven't changed all that much in in, uh, in the way they dissect things, I, I don't think. I can look at it now and sort of say, that's not far removed from what we did 20-odd years ago. And then you went on the couch from there uh, with uh, Walsey. Yes. And Jared Healy. Yep. Yeah, and Walsey, um, we had Walsey. Um, who else is on? Uh, help me out here, Pete. I know we worked with Terry Wallace at Talking Footy. Yeah. Um, Bloody and Lee Matthews mm-hmm. and Wolsey. Wolsey and I were a good combination, even though he used to sometimes unnerve me because he'd have that, you know, that glassy stare that he would have when he played, uh, and he certainly didn't tolerate anything that he thought uh, was off centre. So, but but it helped make the program. And I think the other thing those those shows need a journo. There's no question. While we haven't played the game, we're better at asking the more incisive questions. 
Couldn't agree more, but did anyone from football who had played a couple of hundred games ever look at you, look you in the eye and say, what would you know you haven't played? Sort of, yeah. Who? Um, well, I can't specifically remember. I just know that there was a, a feeling at times that uh, that my view was downplayed because I hadn't been out there. But I was lucky to have... Uh, McAvaney initially there because he was the same situation. He was a man who was besotted with football but hadn't played. But I think people like Bruce and and myself and you and Caroline Wilson and all those people, we shouldn't be downgraded because we haven't been out there. I mean, you can love something. I mean, you, you don't have to uh, – you, you can know Elvis is a good singer without having sung yourself, can't mm, you? Yeah. So and- I've always defended that and I've always been prepared to offer my opinion even though people might sort of say – I mean, it's a cheap shot when you when you finish. If you can't attack someone on their argument, I don't think you should do it on the fact that they haven't been out there. Yeah, and we're observers rather than experts. Yeah, and, and that's and why we have the likes of Wolsey and those people there because they are people who've been out there in the heat of battle. I would have watched, I suspect, in my life over a thousand games of footy. Now, I'm pretty dumb if I don't learn something from that, am I not? Mm. Uh, so, and it seems in cricket that it's more acceptable to have not have played. You know the the the, ex, the cricket experts. I mean, they don't seem to be questioned as much as the football people do. But perhaps perhaps we're more critical of the participants in football. Therefore, the comeback is well. What would you know? You haven't played. Although, by the same token, you look at the Channel Nine commentary team, and if you haven't captained Australia, then you're probably not likely to get a gig on. Yeah, but I'm talking more so people in print. I oh think, yes, like Gidding and Hague and yeah. those sort of people. Yeah, yeah, but cricket is a. I think cricket writing is a bit different. It's more prone to. Uh, pros, if you like. You, Correct. You can be a bit more flowery about cricket. Like, like Greg Baum's the perfect example. Yes. Never played cricket, but is a brilliant writer. Exactly. And has this great cred because of the way he puts his words together. In your craft in the heyday, uh, there was no social media, uh, which has changed a lot of what happens in the game. There's still no days. social media for some of us, Peter. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right. And there are two of us sitting at the table at the moment. But in those days, there must have been things that you knew that you didn't report. Mm-hmm. How fine a balancing act was that? When I get asked this question, it's a legitimate question. I don't have a specific answer to it. I mean, it, it's it's feel, I reckon. Mm. And there was a, 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 an example, a contemporary example of what you're talking about. Um, I was admitted to the Epworth Hospital four or five years ago because I was ill. Um, and by chance, but you are, it's so fluky you won't believe it, but... I went into the bed that had been occupied one hour earlier by Ben Cousins, right? Who I understand now to have been in there because he OD'd. Okay? Now, I thought in those circumstances that it, was, it wasn't something I should write about in terms of hospital, privacy, doctor, patient, all that sort of jazz, and I didn't write about it. But if I'd have been my boss, I probably would have said, you should write about it. Mm. But uh, to me, it's give and take. I, I think. Um, I've done 160 episodes of Open Mic and I think I get access to people. We don't pay for Open Mic, right? So I think I get access to people because people have trusted me. So I think it's a trust thing uh, that's the payback, that if uh, if you look after people and you don't do the wrong thing by them, they will then reciprocate down the track. I wish I'd known you didn't pay for people for Open Mic. We wouldn't have opened the checkbook to get you in here today. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think uh, football could ever go back to the days, Mick, of um, the aftermatch function where the players mix together and have a beer and um, drink with the journos? Gee, they were and, good. They, yeah. were, they were good fun. But, I mean, they had their downside too, Peter. There was a North Melbourne Carlton game at Arden Street one day where a blue broke out. Mm. Um, they could happen. And I think 
Uh, I like the idea. The concept's good, but in practical terms, I'm not sure it works. They've got lots of things they've got to do. Um, and certainly the coaching staff are not going to want these blokes drinking out of long necks for an hour or two after a game of football, given that they might play you know, six days later or they might be injured or whatever. So um, it's a cosy idea, I'm not, but I don't think it can work. Or perhaps having the odd dart at uh, three-quarter time as well, which some of the players used to do. Well, a lot of them did. I mean, those great North Melbourne teams of the 70s, there were, I can tell you at least six of those blokes who used to fag. Mm. Um, I, was t- I was talking to our great friend Sandy Roberts on the weekend, calling football with him, and uh, talked about Blighty when he was coaching. Yep. Remember those coaches' boxes that used to be on the first level there at Waverley? Mm-hmm. And the Channel 7 portable cameras would be down on the boundary line to get the players coming off. And then eventually the director would say, go up and get a shot of the coaches in the box. Blighty had one bloke especially in the box there on one particular duty. And that was to let him know when the camera came up so he could put his cigarette down <laughs> underneath the bench. He liked him. He chewed him up, didn't he? But <laughs> he, he did. I reckon there were at least, as I said, six of those North blokes um, at in the in the mid seventies, who were regular smokers, mm. and now I know, I I can't remember the last time I saw a footballer with a dart. Maybe perhaps on Oaks Day or at some time in the spring carnival when there's a. Oh, uh, that'd be cigars. So they just smoke cigars. That's <laughs> well, different should. these days. Isn't they got it? the money to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break, and then we will talk about that great program, that award-winning program that you were involved in, Open Mic, and some of the memorable guests, and there have been oh, many. Will you ask me about look, the wild guests? Are you going to ask me about Mark Jackson? Oh, I hadn't even thought of that, but now that you've <laughs> mentioned it, I will on the other side of the break. Mike Sheen is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, serving families across Victoria for more than 80 years. More with Mick after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And what a privilege it is for me to have Mike Sheehan as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Open mic. Uh, I've got to say congratulations. It is a magnificent series and hopefully it will be documented and go down into the vault because in lots of ways it is the history of some of the greatest personalities the game has seen. I think you've done a brilliant job with the show. Thanks, thanks, Pete. Um, yeah, look, it's it's been something. It was my idea originally in conjunction with Rod Law, who was then running Fox Footy, and I said, look, there, there are so many people out there who've got stories to tell, and they're more likely to be able to tell them now that they're retired. Um, and it grew from a sort of an um, irregular program. Was six or eight weeks we were doing things out and Rod said to me one day if this shows to get any traction it needs to be weekly and that was eight years ago. Mm. What's the secret do you think to getting the best out of people because the promos now say it, that you're walking along the street and people just can't can't help confessing something to you <laughs> yeah and you do that. You Those get, ads are clever aren't they? They well, are very clever. Well I think I'm conversational uh, so and, it's a chat rather than an yes, interview. Yes, and, and in the ideal situation, when people ask me, I sort of say, look, I like it to to be as if the two of us, me and the subject, are in a public bar somewhere having a couple of beers and we're just talking, chewing the fat. And I think that's how it evolves. Uh, uh, the, one of the, the first promos for this program, I'd done about six or eight, and Foxwood did a promo and they took me up to a Catholic church in Fitzroy and put me in clerical garb uh, in the confessional and that's what they saw of it then and it's still the same sort of thing that people are prepared to open up. Now I think I'm not bad at it but I just the, the people who come on I, in my view are ready to talk I always say to them if they're, if they're reluctant that they shouldn't do it 
I need them to come on and be prepared to tell their story. Uh, and, and almost without exception, they are. Can you think of a time where you sat in the chair and got an answer that you didn't expect and that nearly blew you away? Um, there's been some good ones. Um, it's, and, and when I say that, you'll say, what are they? I can't actually remember specifically, but, but I know the difference when, um, when you don't get someone who's prepared to talk. I mean, there were, the only two that I've been disappointed with uh, and I like both the blokes, but I don't think that they wanted to do it, were uh, Stephen Silvani and Peter Moore, and they just didn't seem like that they were into it. That I think they were there reluctantly rather than uh, enthusiastically, and so uh, the program suffered. It's got to be – people have to be prepared to answer the questions. Uh, people say I love the tears, and that's true. I think that just shows how uh, emotional people are. But some of the, the, the interviews, like with Mark Eustace, with Alan Stone and with Peter Swab, with John Kennedy, all talking about either drug addictions in Eustace's case and the other three uh, in deaths in their immediate family, um, I mean, that's really powerful stuff. And sometimes that just seems to, if you can turn the key and open the, the floodgates and to have, I mean, I remember, I'll never forget this. I said to Peter Swab one day, and we were talking about his daughter who died I think of a brain tumour. And I said, Peter, do you feel cheated? And the look on his face was to sort of say, how can you ask me that? How can you ask a father if he feels cheated to have lost his daughter at five or six years of age? And and those things um, are just so powerful. And uh, more recently, I interviewed Ollie Florent and his mother. Brilliant episode. Rachel. Yeah. And, and, and more power to them that they're prepared to talk about it. But this kid, well, in Rachel's case, she lost her husband at 45, and three months later, her son gets drafted by the Swans and is going to move into state. And I think the power of that and just what it means to families and how important football is to the equilibrium of families is just so powerful. You talked about tears in the guest chair. Have there ever been tears in the host chair? Have you been in tears <laughs> in the show? Oh, there's two that uh, that were really uh, threw me a bit. Des Tudnam, and I asked him a question. Maybe with my time over again, I wouldn't have. Maybe because I think his footy career was so big that we were entitled to focus on that. But I talked to him about um, a skirmish with the law at one point, mm. and he was clearly not impressed with that. Uh, even though I'd said to him before the program started that everything was on the table. Because when I, I said to Des, will you come on open, Mike? He said, yeah, love to. I said, you know, there's going to be some hard questions. And Des said, ask me whatever you like, which to me was everything's out there. Um, the other one was uh, Mark Jackson when I was fairly concerned about my welfare at different points. You were actually physically intimidated. Well, I was in the point of view... When we, we have a bottle of water with us each, uh, the, the subjects and myself, before we start, and the last thing they do is sort of say, boys, give us your bottles of water uh, and you can have a drink whenever you feel like it. And Jacko refused to give his up. He said, no, I want it. And I, I, my fear was that he was going to tip the bottle over my head, which I would have considered the ultimate indignity. I would have rather him hit me than do that. Right? Now, he didn't do it, and they, they did finally rest the bottle off him. But that was pretty daunting. I had um, I, That interview went for 45 minutes and it almost started with him saying that he wished I got cancer uh, and that I was on his hit list with Robbie Flower and Jared Healy and assorted others, Trevor Barker. So that was really unnerving. Um, not quite sure what else I could have done. I, I went, I exhausted it, went to, from start to finish, but I could have walked off. I didn't think that was going to be particularly edifying. Uh, and as Dennis Banks said, I could have whacked him in the mouth, and I didn't think that was particularly smart. 
What sort of reaction did you get after that interview? I got um, 153 text messages after that, Peter, which is uh, a considerable number. Some people I hadn't heard of in years and, and lots of big names in football. I'm mean, of the ilk of Michael Voss. He was one of them. Um, all sort of saying, look, don't be flustered. Don't take it to heart. Don't be offended. Don't change your style. Uh, they all thought he was out of order. And he was clearly was out of order. Mm. Have you I mean, spoken it, to him since? No. I have no interest in speaking to him since. He, uh, people say to me it was a setup. Stephen Quartermain said he thought it was a setup. The part that, that offends me is that uh, Jacko came into the – and we're in the green room beforehand, and we've never been close, right? There's always been some tension. And there was a bit of byplay, nothing serious. And then as soon as the camera went on, as soon as the light went on, then he turned dirty. And I, he should have said to me at the start, I reckon, I'm going to go for you today or I don't like you or, you know, you. But, but he didn't. I mean, it was as if we were going to have a sort of a reasonably cordial conversation that turned nasty. What did you think when you watched it back? You know what? I don't think I watched it back. Was that a conscious decision because it was so uncomfortable at yeah, the time? Yeah, I think so. I can't remember ever seeing that on telly. Um, but I, t- I tell you what, Cameron, every person who can speak English in the world has asked me about it, including a bloke who couldn't speak much English. was in a Chinese shop one day and he asked me about oh, Jacko. You know, so it, it, um, I think it had 130,000 hits on YouTube. Mm. Now, we, this show, I, I love the show and I think it's important for Fox footy, but it doesn't, it doesn't rate like the footy show used to. Um, so when you're talking about those numbers, it's just a, by word of mouth. Everyone was saying the same thing. And I still go to places now. That interview, I think, was two years ago, I think. Mm. People still ask. That's the first. If I could do a sportsman's night or a speech anywhere, I can guarantee that's one of the questions. So I often um, preempt it now. I'll sort of say, well, uh, when they'll say it's question time, I'll say, well, just to stop all of you wrestling with the question about Mark Jackson, I think Mark Jackson is a bleep bleep. Uh, and let's leave it there. Probably sums it up in your eyes. Um, <laughs> so everyone is um, speaking English has asked you about it, and now one person who's speaking gibberish has asked you about <laughs> it, and that's me. Now, I understand that. I mean, I, um, because I would ask you if, if, uh, if I were interviewing me, of course you'd ask that question. Tell me about the Warwick Kappa episode. Was that your highest rating one? Uh, Maybe Jacko so. might have. I, yeah, I think it with Jacko on. more via YouTube, I suspect. Mm. Kappa was uh, the, the highest rating ones. Um, Kappa was one. Caroline Wilson was another. You've got a lot of time for Caro, haven't you? I have. Yeah, we, we are genuine friends. Um, uh, her, her start in journalism was at the Herald, and she was 17, I think, uh, when we first crossed paths. Uh, yeah, I do respect She's brave. She's tough. I think she focuses too much on politics, but uh, I'd, like to, I'd like her working on my paper. Yeah. And the so, Wiz? Uh, the Wiz. The Wiz. Uh, the Wiz's manager rang me and said... Um, I can't remember what his name is, but he said, introduced himself. He said, Warwick wants to come on your program. I said, look, um, I'm not sure he fits the tenor of the program. You know, it's sort of fairly serious. And He said, no, 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 we understand that, but he, he genuinely wants to do it. And I resisted again. And he said, oh, no, he won't be, he won't be a clown. He'll, be, he'll talk seriously about it. So we waited up. Fox were really keen. I was less keen. He came on, and it's shown on closed circuit at Fox, so you can watch it if you want to while it's happening. And I thought it went okay. I thought it was quite funny. Like he says some things, typically a capper. I walked out of the studio 
Every person in Fox came up to me and said, how good was that? Wasn't, wasn't Warwick great, blah, blah, blah. And I started to think, this is going to work. And, and this got the same reaction publicly uh, and, and in ratings, actually. Mm. Is part of the secret to it, and you have mastered this in lots of ways, what we're doing now, just sitting and having a conversation and seeing where it takes us. Because yeah. I've got some notes in front of me, but I haven't looked at them once while yeah, we're yeah, having yeah. a chat. Because it, it's just you and I having a chat. Is that what you do? Yeah, well, it is. I like to think the same thing. And I have a clipboard in front of me, which you will know because I have it on every program. And there are some programs where I never um, look down at it. It's sort of like a safety net. Yeah. I sort of think it's there if I get into trouble. I remember when I interviewed Maddie Lloyd, who I and I genuinely loved that interview. I thought Lloyd, he was brilliant about how his honesty and um, and all the fears about a bloke, a good player who's struggling and what happened the day he ran through Brad Sewell and the Hawthorne blokes were going to smash him, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I, the only time that I've been concerned about my mental faculties was that day I had to keep saying to myself, Matthew, 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 because for some reason I was, you know, I was struggling to identify with the subject. Mm. But um, I would look down at my clipboard on that occasion, but almost every other time it's just there in case I run into a mental block. Because there are a lot of people on Australian television who have been very highly regarded interviewers over the years and without that clipboard they wouldn't have questions. And it's to me, it's not a good look on television. If, to because you're, down, not, yeah. you're not engaging with the yeah, person. No, no, that I you're agree with that. To. I'm conscious of that too. And I hate it when I look back at a program and see with see my head down. Uh, because I think you're right, it's eyeball to eyeball and, and it's this chat which makes it work. I, I agree totally with that. As I said, uh, we're having a conversation and it's disjointed, so I'm going to completely disjointed now because I'm going to go back before open mic. And your time at the AFL, did you yeah. enjoy that? Uh, yeah, I did. That was I was there from um, 85 to 89. I remember working. I was working at the Herald at the time and I saw Jack, Jack Hamilton walking down uh, Flinders Street one day and I was good friends with Jack uh, professionally and socially. And I said to Jack, why don't you give me a job? And he said, what sort of job? I said, why don't you, like your image and, 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 and the PR and the media stuff. He said, mm, okay, well, sounds all right to me. Let's have a talk about it. So we had a talk about it and I went to the AFL. Um, I remember Alan Jeans, when it was announced that I was going to the AFL, he said, uh, there are three tough jobs in this country. Uh, the New South Wales uh, unions or railways I think the Catholic Church, even back then, mm. and the AFL. And he said, you've taken the toughest one. <laughs> but I did I, – I, look, it was a great period to be there. I mean, there was the, the expansion of the national competition. The commission hadn't long been in place, so I was involved with that. I used to sit in, on the commission meetings um, and have a role. I mean, you know me well enough to know I couldn't sit there and just uh, take the minutes or uh, be mute. Mm. Um, and I was quite – close with Peter Scanlon, who was a very powerful commissioner. So he liked to bounce the ideas off me and I liked to give an answer to them. And we used to be up on the third floor there at Jollymont House Correct. and uh, the tribunal hearings used to be there and there'd yep. be television cameras all over the place and Ross Oakley's office was That's there right. and Jack Hamilton's office was there. Yeah. Where was your office? Uh, where was my office? Uh, I was on the second floor, I think. The, the big guys, well, it was only um, Alan Schwab and, and whoever the CEO was at the time, either Jack and then Ross, they were on the third floor. Yes. And I think I was one below them. Up with uh, Ros Desmond, who was yes, um, Rosie Desmond, who was the Ross's the PA for the PA, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I and I enjoyed that, and I think it's sort of 
it, it was important for me to see the machinations of this um, administration, how things worked, the problems that they had on the way through. So uh, that was a part of the learning process. And I left there and went to uh, the Sunday Age when it started up in 1989. So it's been a wide, varied journey for Mike Sheehan, and you may not have played AFL, but there is a member of the Sheehan family who has got to the AFL. Yes, she has. And we might talk about that on the other side of the break because we have to pay the bills, Michael. I have to pay the fee that you were charging to come in. (laughs) Yeah, that won't take you long. That's not true. Mike Sheen is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives for more than 80 years, and we'll be back with our final segment with Mike after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Our final segment with Mike Sheehan. Mike, just before I ask you about your daughter and uh, what turned out to be a very sad story with her appearance in the AFL Women's League, uh, just back to open Mike for a moment. Anthony Stevens, I thought, was one of the more compelling episodes. Yes, it was, and for obvious reasons. I'm flattered by that. I'd been asking Anthony, uh, would he be prepared to come on and talk about it? And he said no, and he wasn't sure what would be achieved by it. Uh, and at one point, he rang me and he said, Mike, I'm ready to talk. Uh, and he came on and he trusted me with that and we talked and I think it went well and he was happy with it. Um, Glenn Archer told me sometime later that he had knocked back 250 grand from a magazine to tell that story and did open Mike for nothing. Wow. And uh, he rang me after the show was aired and he said um, he had the raw cuts before it went to air and he said, no, I've showed it to certainly his daughter and maybe both ki- both his kids and that they were happy with and they are really proud of him. Uh, and I, I'm eternally grateful, A, that he did it and B, that he was just happy with the way it turned out and C, that he never mentioned anything about money. Well, you can only take that as being a mark of great respect I did. I said I'm flattered by that. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that... Um, yeah, you know, the people that, that are prepared to sort of do it, and so few of them have mentioned coin. They've just been happy to have a chat. And I'm, you know, I think that's, I take that as a, as a compliment. You told me before you've seen more than a thousand games of football. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you ever been as nervous as when no. your daughter no. took the field? No, I haven't. Uh, and I knew how much it meant to Kate. She's playing for Collingwood. Uh, she'd missed out on selection. Uh, in the first three rounds, and she was really disappointed with that because I think she thought that she should be out there and she wasn't. She finally got her chance. Uh, the family's um, gone out to uh, the Witten Oval. Um, it's funny, you'll think this is weird, but I mean, when I was watching her in the warm up, I thought how sharp she looked. I mean, hands are good, never missed a target with her feet, and she is a good kick. I thought she'll just have a good game tonight. She came on for a few minutes in the first quarter. The ball didn't get up her end, so she didn't touch it. Second quarter, she comes on. I reckon 30 seconds in, she took a hand pass. Um, tried to balk, put all her weight on her left leg, and the knee crumpled and gave way. Uh, and that was the birth of the most talked-about handball receiver in the history of football, I reckon. Mm. It was just – and it was such a sad thing for her. I mean, I was – there's a, a doco that um, Collingwood produced on the first year of the women's comp, and – the the doco maker, a girl called Jasmine, was in the rooms at uh, when I went in there with Kate. Kate's on the trestle. She's crying. Her father was not doing a very good job at holding back the tears. So I'm standing with Eddie Maguire and Gary Pert, who to their eternal credit were brilliant. They didn't just come in and ruffle her hair and walk out. They stayed for an hour. And Purdy, who'd had a knee, said to me, you'll have a much greater understanding and empathy uh, 
with people with knee injuries from here. And he was right. I mean, I would have been far more sympathetic when I was a journo had I experienced this before I started. Mm. Because you just, it's not so much the pain and it's not so much that it's not a long-term effect on their health because they recover, but it's just the broken dreams. I mean, yeah. Kate, waited, she was just so pl- pleased to get a crack at it and then to fall over without having had a kick out there was just so disappointing. Perhaps for Kate, the dream might live on. Do you hope that she plays again or do you hope she doesn't play again? No, she knows this. I don't want her to play again. Why? She, she's actually, well, because she might play another half a dozen games um, in football, but I want her career, I wanted to have a career in football and she's now the head of footy ops for the women at Richmond and Richmond have been brilliant to her. She's sat in the coach's box with Damien Hardwick. She goes to all the, the, the big meetings. She presented with Peggy O'Neill the uh, submission to the AFL for inclusion of a Richmond team. So they've given her a great opportunity, and I don't want her to jeopardise that by playing. As we get towards the end of our chat, how much longer are you going to be semi-retired? <laughs> well, I don't know the answer. I've got a contract at for Fox uh, at Fox for another year, um, and I'm not sure what will happen at SEN. But I, I think the fear for people of my age, Peter, and you've got a while to go before you get there, is that... We don't want to wake up one day and say, what am I going to do with today? And then do it again 24 hours later. So even though sometimes I think I've taken on too much, I think it's a better problem to have than not having anything to do. And I still feel involved. I mean, you don't have to be out of it long before you're uninvolved and people have got no idea who you were. Now, maybe I do need that. Maybe I do need to sort of have a, have a link to the game. But I've got that and I appreciate it. And I don't think I um, abuse it in terms of, I mean, I'm happy to stay out of the papers, but I enjoy the chat on radio and uh, I love doing open mic. My final question, if the Mike Sheehan of today, with everything that you have experienced, could walk into the Werribee Banner (laughs) and talk to the Mike Sheehan who walked in and was going to stay for three weeks, what would you tell him about journalism? Uh, I would tell him to make sure... I would tell him that we have two ears and one mouth for a very good reason and that he should listen. And I would tell him to trust people and not breach their confidence. And a couple of times I've probably done that, but fundamentally I haven't. I've observed that and I think that we need to be. It's a position of trust and if you trust people, in most cases they'll reward you. Your place in football is a lot more than those 50 games at Werribee. You've been (laughs) an iconic figure for a long time and uh, a mate for a long time. It's been lovely to sit down and have a chat to you, Michael. Thanks, Pete. I've enjoyed it. Mike Sheehan joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll be back with another edition same time next week on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91